Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. I am Boris Karpa. Welcome to New Books in Military History. Today we have with us a new guest. We have Hans Myers, who has given us The Lion of Round Top, The Life and Military Service of Brigadier General Strong Vincent in the American Civil War. Pleased to have you with us today, Hans. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Boris. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you know, like many shows, like many podcasts, uh, these sort of events are very much a thing of tradition. The, uh, we have a few. We have some questions which are which we ask almost all of our writers, and uh, so this is one of these traditional questions. Why have you chosen Brigadier General Strong Vincent as your subject? Um, of course, people who have read the book already know the answer, but we uh, the purpose of the show is to inform people who have not read the book. So if you could tell our audience a bit about your choice. Well, I mean, if one really looks at, you know, the historiography and the popular conceptions of the Battle of Gettysburg, of course, the biggest conflict of the Eastern Theater of the American Civil War, there's a lot of emphasis put in particular on the fight on July 2nd, 1863, on the federal left flank at a place called Little Round Top. And if you look at most accounts of that fighting that have been published in the secondary or popular presses, most of them tend to focus on Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who was colonel of the 20th Maine at the time of the battle. And Chamberlain was Vincent's subordinate officer. Vincent was his brigade commander. And as a historian from Strong Vincent's hometown of Erie, Pennsylvania, even his reputation and his legacy are somewhat lacking, unfortunately. There isn't really much public awareness here about Vincent's role in perhaps the most central part of the Battle of Gettysburg. And I'd grown up all my life hearing, you know, Strong Vincent High School. That was about all anyone ever hears about here. And I've always just had a sort of fascination with who was this man, what was his story. And about nine years ago now, in 2013, when I was at the Gettysburg battlefield, just before the 150th anniversary of the battle, I started thinking more to myself, why is it there isn't more awareness of Strong Vincent? Why has he been allowed to sort of slide into this obscurity that he has been concealed in from generations of historians from the general public? And I started digging into it, I started researching And the more I read, the more I researched, the more I dug up in various archives and special collections around the country, the more I started to find myself thinking, this man is really the sort of dynamic officer figure that a lot of social historians would really like to look at when it comes to examining the American Civil War. He's 
a citizen soldier. He's the sort of officer who a lot of military historians would probably want to look at because of his work with strategy and tactics in the Battle of Gettysburg being paramount to success on the second day for federal, for northern forces. And I started getting more and more involved in this, and I started looking closer and closer. And as I did so, it became very obvious, to me at least, that a lot of the popular story, a lot of the traditional story of Gettysburg is basically just a house of cards ready to just fall over if prodded a little bit. So, if I may zoom in a bit about something which you said, you've you've grown up in, in Vincent's hometown, and even there, even... Even in Erie, Pennsylvania, where you know, by just as this man should be in a local a local hero figure, he's not very well known, is he? No, he's really not. He's the namesake of what's now a local middle school, following district reconsolidation, Strong Vincent Middle School, and there's a statue of him on the city's bayfront on Lake Erie, and that's essentially it as far as tributes go. There are, of course, a lot of names that are held in very high esteem in Erie. There's Sarah Reed, who was an incredibly generous local philanthropist and who was actually a family friend of Vincent's family, their next-door neighbor. There's Daniel Dobbins, the former Continental Army officer who helped build Oliver Hazard Perry's fleet during the War of 1812. There's Perry himself, who only lived here for a few months in 1813 and 1812 while getting his fleet ready before the battle. But so far as Erie's tangible connections to its history go, Vincent is very much an overlooked figure. There's not really much awareness of his role. There's not really a lot of focus on his heroism and his service in Erie. Which um, brings me around to another traditional question. Mm, you you will see that this is a bit uh, we are a bit like the town in the fiddler on the roof uh, tradition is a very important part of this town mm. can you tell us and some of our most of our audience are people who are who read a lot but some of them are also contemplating writing their own books and so for these people i'd like us to talk about a little bit about your journey as an author mm. If you could tell us a bit uh, about what was the greatest difficulty for you in working on the book, and of course you've overcome it, we have a book, can you tell us what was this difficulty and how you've vanquished it? Oh, the biggest difficulty, with, without question, was trying to run down the primary sources. I mean, anyone who works in history knows that we are just cursed at being at the mercy of what former generations have written down, what they've committed to paper, what's been kept. And it's really the what's been kept that stymied me when I was working on this book. I spent years trying to run down Strong Vincent's personal papers, his personal correspondence, and I could not find it anywhere. I checked libraries and archives and historical societies and research institutions in five different states, anywhere there might have been the slightest chance it would show up. 
Uh, I went through his widow's will. I went through his brother's will. I went through the Episcopal archives of the Diocese of Southeastern Ohio, where his brother had been the bishop prior to his death in the 1930s. I went through libraries and archives in Chicago, where one of Vincent's subordinate officers, who'd been a stalwart defender of his legacy, had died in 1920. I went through the local historical society here in Erie. I went through the National Archives in D.C. I went through the Harvard University Special Collections and Archives, where Vincent was an alumni of the school, and none of them had much of anything. I found one or two of his personal letters, and I do quote them in the book. Uh, I primarily, for Vincent's own correspondence, had to rely upon his letters for work, let's call them his requisitions, his requests for troop assignments and soldiers to be returned to the field, his dispensing of commissions. I couldn't find his letters to his wife anywhere, and the best summation I can come up with is they must have been destroyed after his death, because unfortunately that was a very large trend in the 19th century in the Victorian era any letters that might be seen as too sentimental or too embarrassing to ever be read were unfortunately frequently destroyed. Most famously, we see that with the correspondence between Abraham and Mary Lincoln that he, that their son Robert destroyed following their deaths. And I got around that difficulty as best as I could. I specifically have a note in the, I believe it's the introduction of the book, where I say I was not able to find much of Vincent's own personal correspondence to relate, you know, where he was in particular on this date, this date, this date. So what I did was I pulled back a little bit for a slightly larger view, and I used his regiment, the 83rd Pennsylvania, as a proxy to tell his story through their story, for lack of a better phrase. Mm. There is something which you know because um, my own in my own um, in my own dispensation, if you will. I I'm a military historian, and I, a lot of a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are in the field of military history. Some of them are, however, in military science, and so um, you know. Um, today, of course, when people become military officers, it's through a very specific course of training. It's through a very specific course of military education. Usually, if, if you know, usually by the time you have become become a brigadier general, you've had perhaps five or six cumulative years in different uh, military trades uh, schools. But that's not how things worked in the nineteenth century. And um, Strong Vincent isn't um, isn't a trained officer. He enrolls during the Civil War, and um, judging by your book, uh, judging by the quotes you have in the your book, it's uh, initially left not necessarily a very good impression on people who've served with him, his subordinates and other officers. But here, very rapidly, he. Um, very rapidly, he, you know, evolved. He grew professionally. And can you maybe tell us a little bit about this growth? Yeah, he 
he enlisted as a volunteer. The 83rd Pennsylvania was, of course, a volunteer regiment as opposed to a regular regiment. And volunteer regiments at the time of the American Civil War elected their own officers. It was a proud tradition stretching back to the days of the militia, the Minutemen, and the American Revolution. And prior to the 83rd Pennsylvania forming in August of 1861... Vincent had been part of a 90 days regiment that was known just as the Erie Regiment. In that regiment, he'd served as the first lieutenant of Company A. So when he's enlisting in the 83rd Pennsylvania, he's coming in roughly as the equivalent of that first lieutenant again. Uh, He is, however, in the immediate officer elections when that regiment is formed, elected to be their major, the third in command of the regiment. Uh, perhaps in testimony to his competent work as the adjutant of the Erie Regiment, perhaps in testament to the wealth and influence of his family. The Vincents were one of the wealthiest families in western Pennsylvania at the time, perhaps due to competence and favoritism in the eyes of the regimental commander, Colonel John W. McLean. We don't really have any explanation for why Vincent just immediately leapfrogs to Major as soon as he joins the volunteer regiment, the 83rd Pennsylvania. But he does. And we don't have you know, we don't have any record I'm sorry to interrupt you. We don't have any record of him so to say working the working the crowd to be elected uh, or somehow making uh, some kind of elaborate effort to this. It no, there happened, but there's no uh, no record. Yeah, it may have happened. It may not have happened. There's no evidence to say he did or he didn't. Uh, but when he had been serving as adjutant of the Erie Regiment, the ninety days regiment I mentioned just a minute ago, uh, he had. That's when you were specifically referencing the quote from Oliver Norton, who would go on to become the headquarters bugler and color bearer under Vincent the eighty third Pennsylvania. Uh, who had said upon first meeting him, I thought him a dude and an upstart. You know, he refers to him in these terms that don't sound particularly loaded to us in, you know, the year 2022. But in 1861, that would have been a fairly withering assessment of his character. Just, he was this up-jumped man who was trying to seem flashy and put together and in control. And... Norton admits that his initial impression was flawed. He was going, I thought him a dude and an upstart. I didn't have a very favorable impression of him. But as the war progresses and Vincent demonstrates what I would say is a natural talent for leadership, especially battlefield leadership, uh, he earns the respect and admiration of his men. He becomes clearly a favorite of his superior officers to the point where by the time he finally does get promoted to Brigadier General after he's been mortally wounded at Gettysburg, this is the second time they've tried to get a commission through for him. And it's a relatively rapid, almost meteoric rise through the ranks. August 1861, he's a major. By November of that year, he's the lieutenant colonel. By June of the following year, 1862, he's the colonel of the regiment, and then by July 1863, he's made a brigadier general after Gettysburg. So you would not so much say that he learns on the job and more that he is actually just very talented and gradually people um, 
people sees us? I would say it was a combination of both. I mean, leadership isn't really something that can be taught in a lot of senses. It's an innate skill that people have and they've honed to a certain degree, or that they do not possess, but they've learned to try and present. In Vincent's case, we do know that he spent several weeks running what he what was called the officer's school, a sort of tongue-in-cheek way of referring to it. And we know he ran this in the camps in 1861. Basically, he was reading the military manuals of the day, you know, Hardy's tactics. He was reading everything he could get his hands on. And he is then disseminating that information. He's serving as the schoolmaster to the to the line officers of the regiment, the captains, the sergeants, the lieutenants. And by the t- this clearly goes well because by the time the end of 1861 rolls around, the 83rd Pennsylvania has a regiment is considered to be perhaps the best drilled regiment in the Army of the Potomac in the praise of its commanding officer at the time, then George B. McClellan. And McClellan was rather controversial as a field commander, but when it came to drilling and training and organizing troops, he was without equal in the time of the American Civil War, so that's high praise coming from him. And when Vincent gets his first real battlefield experience in command of the regiment, that's the Battle of Fredericksburg in 1862, uh, they're in the last wave of federal forces that mount the desperate charges against Murray's Heights, Uh, in December of 1862. They're standing online waiting to advance as the reserve of their division for most of the afternoon while, you know, Confederate artillery shot and marksman's bullets are screaming around them even where they're standing on the far side of the mill race from Lee's lines. And, you know, we've got accounts of the other regiments in the brigade, we've got Chamberlain and Adelbert Ames of the 20th Maine, you know, lying down in the mud with their men seeking cover from shells screaming overhead. We've got men of the 16th Michigan, another regiment in the brigade, talking about seeking shelter behind trees and fence posts where they can. And then we've got accounts from the 83rd Pennsylvania where they're ducking and wincing as shells are flying overhead. And Vincent's just standing there, still as a statue at the head of his men, staring straight across the flat open field towards the Confederate lines. He's not ducking, he's not weaving, he's not flinching for cover. He's just standing there holding his sword in his hand, waiting for the order to advance. And it's that kind of cool determination under fire, that sort of desire to stand there with your men in the thick of the fight and not start shirking or seeking for cover that's the leadership skill that you really cannot teach and it was moments like that that endeared him greatly to his men his subordinate officers his superior officers grew to love him for his tenacity in the field during the march to Gettysburg he commanded a his brigade in conjunction with cavalry forces to try and route some of James Earl Brown Jeff Stewart's forces near Ashby's Gap. And when the action was finished and Vincent's infantry had been incredibly successful in helping dislodge the dismounted Confederate cavalry, his corps commander, George Meade, 
supposedly just proclaimed, I wish he were a brigadier general, I'd put him in command of a division. I'd like to drill down a little bit more about um, about uh, um, Strong Vincent's uh, military skills because it strikes me that in a in a way he he has a lot of these virtues of a 19th century commander, uh, the bravery which you talk about, and his personal charisma which was still very important at that time. But he also has something which I think that his background and, and, and as an attorney has played into, which you talk about a lot about in your book, his use of, of his uh, skills to you know to, to um, confront the Union Army's bureaucracy to get his men the support which they needed, the winter uniform which they needed, and in this sense he's. Already, he's one foot in the 20th century logistical bureaucracy in this sense. Yes. Uh, I'm not a logistician. I'm not a quartermaster, so I'm not too up and up on the bureaucracy of the modern armed forces. I have a lot of respect for the people who are, but the long-running... So yes. the item which I'd like to, to maybe for you could talk about a bit more is that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, is that the way in which his, his skills as an attorney have played into his ability to advocate for his men, for his regiment. Yes. Uh, but it's it's very apparent to me, and I mean to people I know who do study logistics, who do study things of that nature, that one of the biggest problems of an army, whether it's in camp, whether it's on the move, is always just supply. And supply is a huge issue for the federal armies during the American Civil War because they're operating primarily in enemy territory. They're in Confederate territory. And I mentioned earlier, pretty much the only extant letters of Vincent's that I was able to find were those relating to his work as commander of the 83rd Pennsylvania. It's a lot of supply orders, it's a lot of requisitions, it's a lot of fixing the sort of mundane little snafus that come with army bureaucracy and all its multitude and myriad of flavors. Uh, There's one saga in particular where he spends several months basically just going back and forth with the War Department in the state of Pennsylvania, trying to get a regimental surgeon for the 83rd Pennsylvania, because the regimental surgeon they'd been assigned was a middle-aged, bordering on elderly gentleman who had spent all of his life as the town physician for another town in Pennsylvania but he had been passed over to be the regimental surgeon for that town's regiment by a younger man by the War Department. And so Vincent was saying, look, we don't want this older man. He should stay with the men he's known since they were children. We'll take the younger man. And it's just this back and forth for months and months and months. But his skills as a lawyer... He's not, you know, writing briefs or arguing the various requisition orders, but there's a lot of paperwork involved in the legal profession to this day in the 19th century. And so his working experience as a law clerk and then as a member of a law firm, I think really gave him a sort of leg up on the bureaucracy, the 
fill this form out in triplicate, submit your report in this particular style by this particular date, that a lot of his fellow volunteer officers did not have. Because even if they're volunteer officers who went to West Point, as many of them were, they weren't so used to the rota and the bureaucracy since the focus in West Point was more on strategy and tactics and the classics in Latin and Greek of military history at that time. So the emphasis on bureaucracy, I think, from the legal profession did assist and expedite his being one of the more reliable officers in the army in terms of filing his paperwork. Thank you for that uh, for this answer, Hans. And I was, uh, I'd like to circle back. I'd like to circle back to something which we have started with, is that you believe, you've argued in your book, I think very convincingly, that Strong Vincent is um, unfairly consigned to a sort of um, minor reputation, lesser for reputation than he deserves. And in part you've, uh, in part you've suggested that this is part to some de- deliberate... Um, deliberate underhandedness, if you will, by Joshua Chamberlain. Would you take this so far? Would you actually say that Chamberlain's um, own contribution to the battle is not actually as significant? Or or perhaps the actual bayonet charge has not um, happened in the way it's attributed to Chamberlain? Uh, this is uh, this is where things can get a little dicey because I have a lot of respect for Joshua Chamberlain as a historical figure and as a volunteer officer. Uh, the man served from 1862 to 1865 and was personally selected by Ulysses Grant to be the officer to receive the Confederate surrender in the formal surrender ceremonies a few days after Appomattox. But I don't particularly think Chamberlain deserves as much of the credit for the victory on Little Round Top as he's been given. I'm not going to say, you know, Chamberlain was a nothing and a nobody. He had just stolen all the glory that belongs to Vincent. Because the famous bayonet charge of the 20th Maine is still, you know, it's an inspiring moment of military heroism under fire. It's an audacious tactical maneuver that did succeed in startling and dislodging the enemy from the field. But I think we've sort of lost sight of the forest for the trees, if I can borrow the metaphor to make my point. We've become so focused in on Chamberlain and the 20th Maine and their famous bayonet charge that we've forgotten there were three other federal units in their brigade on that hill. We've forgotten that there were other federal units on the hill. We've forgotten the 140th New York under Patrick O'Rourke arrived to reinforce them. We've forgotten Charles Hazlitt's Battery D of the 5th United States Artillery was there on the hill as well. And, I mean, this is not just like a popular conception thing. This is fully embedded in historical analysis of the Battle of Gettysburg, Uh, renowned late military historian Sir John Keegan in his history of the American Civil War specifically refers to the 20th Maine being alone in defending Little Round Top, which is just very untrue, and I don't say that to, you know, dunk on or insult Professor Keegan. I'm just illustrating that this has become such 
a concrete and accepted viewpoint that it's hard to separate the myth from reality. Now, I do believe Chamberlain did engage in a series of actions for the remainder of his life after the American Civil War that are historically dubious at best. I don't fault him for taking his speaking tours in the 1860s and 1870s because that was something very common on both sides, North and South. I don't fault him for writing memoirs of the conflict later because, again, that was very common North and South. I do, however, fault him for the way that he sort of twisted his words, if that makes sense. Because there's a famous story from Ellis Spear, who was the acting major of the 20th Maine at Gettysburg, that he attended an event at Bowdoin College years after the war while Chamberlain was the president of Bowdoin. And he heard some of the young students saying, there's the man who fought on Little Round Top as Chamberlain passed. And Chamberlain's response was to just say, fought and held. And that rankled Ellis Spear because it felt like he said, like he was robbing the dead. He was taking the credit from Vincent. There's a lot of debate about Ellis Spear himself as a source because some historians will claim by the time he was writing his memoirs, by the time he was engaged in this correspondence heavily critical of Chamberlain in the 19-teens, that he was senile, that he was beginning to suffer from dementia. Well, I personally, as a historian, am of the belief that any question raised about a historical topic deserves to be examined. Whether or not the person raising the question is senile, whether they do have dementia. And Ellis Spear specifically raises questions about Chamberlain's role at Gettysburg in his correspondence with Oliver Norton in the 19-teens. And those questions, if you go back and you examine the primary record, they do have some weight to them. I mean, I talk in my appendix to the book about the official records, the OR, the War of the Rebellion, which is sort of the be-all, end-all, holy grail of sources on the American Civil War, published by the War Department in the 1880s and the 1890s. It's this huge set of documents. Pretty much every letter and telegram sent officially to or from a general officer in the field, it's everyone's battle reports, And when they were preparing the volume on Gettysburg, the first of three volumes on Gettysburg, the War Department discovered they couldn't find the 20th Maine's official report for the battle. So the War Department clerks in charge of preparing this volume wrote to Chamberlain and asked him to send them a copy along with an affidavit verifying this is the original report, no changes have been made, blah, 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 blah. And Chamberlain sends them back this thing that's 2,500 words. It's loaded with purple prose. It's got references to three officers dying. And if you go back and you look at the hospital records, that would have been really shocking news for two of the officers based on the date the report was supposedly written because they were still alive and would be for another couple of weeks. And it's really fascinating because in that report that's in the OR, he refers to the hill as Little Round Top, which... To us, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. You know, we've called it that all our lives when we're talking about the fight there. The hill was not named Little Round Top until 1867. So right away, that should be setting off red flags with historians. 
And from the best records that we have, including the state archives in Augusta, Maine, where a copy of Chamberlain's actual official report of Gettysburg from 1863 still resides, it's very obvious if you sit down and you look at it and you think about it, that Chamberlain sent them a falsified report he'd written 20 years after the fact to sort of bolster the bona fides of his own regiment to make themselves look better because, you know, if you have a speaking tour career, you have to have something to talk about in order to sell tickets. And that's in the official records. It's, I would argue, probably the six most looked at pages in the official records first volume on Gettysburg, the report of the 20th Maine. And historians for 140 years have been using what's tantamount to a forgery as part of their primary source research. Well, let me just summarize this for our listeners. You are not suggesting, you're suggesting that Joshua Chamberlain was a very brave and talented officer, but that he did forge, he did forge a substantial amount, a substantial document, and perhaps and clearly also misled the public on other occasions. Yes, I'm not going to say he was a complete reprobate, though. He did not engage in wholesale forgery uh, in 1912 and 1913. He authored a pair of articles for popular magazines, My Story of Fredericksburg and Through Blood and Fire at Gettysburg. And these articles are still hugely popular. You'll see them in the bibliographies of a lot of books on the American Civil War to this day. Uh, The only problem is these articles were published in magazines edited by William Randolph Hearst. And, I mean, William Randolph Hearst, of course, the father of yellow journalism in American history, who, depending on who you ask, may or may not have helped start a war with Spain just to sell newspapers. Uh, It should sort of immediately raise a flag with historians that perhaps what's being printed is not what's being written. Now, we don't have the manuscripts for these articles from Chamberlain. We do know he wrote them. We don't have the manuscripts. But we know that he was personally incredibly opposed to the versions that appeared in print. We have letters from him to people who were asking him for copies saying, the Hearst editors have so mutilated my Gettysburg through the insertion of connected tissue, I've not bothered to get copies. So when it came to the story as a whole, he was not particularly going out of his way to deliberately muddy the waters I think what happened with the official report in the 1880s is that was a decade in which you're starting to see a lot more personal narratives of the Civil War appear. You're getting a lot more memoirs from a lot more sources. And the historian Glenn LaFantasy actually refers to Chamberlain as having something of a peevish and defensive tone for much of the 1880s when he talks about Little Round Top because these other narratives are starting to appear. And I think that incident may have been a bit more of a backlash against other perspectives than it was a deliberate effort to muddy the historical record. I don't I don't think Chamberlain was a bad man. I don't at all. He was an incredibly brave and valorous soldier who was wounded in the service of his country, who took time as a tenured faculty member to take sabbatical to go fight in the war because he was personally opposed to the institution of slavery. But 
there is no doubt in my mind that it's very accurate and very easy to say that in spite of being a good man, Chamberlain had a bit of an ego problem, and at times he let that get the better of him, and at times he was better at controlling it. Well, that's part of what um, history teaches us. People sometimes have a set of a set of uh, particular virtues, but then in other aspects of their personality, they might not necessarily be um, as perfect as we would like our heroes to be. Yes, exactly. Shades of gray, everyone. Now, um, I appreciate that you don't have a military background, but as I've said again... We have a, a dual audience here. Uh, some of our listeners, uh, even sometimes some of our guests, but a lot of our listeners are uh, people with primarily military science interest. And so, again, I appreciate that you are a historian. I am a historian. Mm. But do you think that there is something from uh, something about? Uh, mm, strong Vincent's story that we can uh, learn from t- some kind of lasting lesson to the modern era of, you know, precision warfare that we can learn from this? I think the biggest takeaway from the story of strong Vincent that still has value to military readers today, to officers and enlisted men, even if they're reading this, is that courage is not one size fits all. It does not look the same in every appearance. Whether it's strong Vincent at Fredericksburg not flinching as the shells are screaming around him, whether it's Chamberlain and the 20th Maine making their famous bayonet charge on the afternoon of July 2nd, there's a sort of difference to its appearance in every form. And I would say that the biggest takeaway from the story of Strong Vincent at Gettysburg in particular is that initiative is sometimes the be-all, end-all in an engagement. On July 2nd, the Federal Third Corps was supposed to be occupying the left flank of the line They were supposed to have forces securing the round tops. But earlier in the day, their commander, Major General Dan Sickles, had advanced them half a mile to what was called the Peach Orchard Salient, where they took the brunt of the Confederate assault directly in their face, leaving the round tops undefended. And George Meade, the army commander, sent Governor Warren, his chief engineer, too little round top to survey the field as the attack's beginning to make sure the situation on the left was controlled. And Warren saw this flat-topped hill mostly shorn clear of trees, and he knew it would be a natural artillery strong point that could force the abandonment of the entire federal line. And Warren seized the initiative, and he sent his own staff riding to find men to hold the hill. And these men eventually found George Sykes, the commander of the 5th Corps, who sent his own aide running to find one of his division commanders, James Barnes, with orders to send a brigade to take the hill. And this aide found Vincent instead, and Vincent wrested the man's orders from him. What are your orders? Captain, give me your orders. And then on his own initiative, he took his men to hold the round top. 
and they had been online and in position and thrown out their skirmishers for all of five minutes before the Confederates were on top of them. I'm not saying recklessly abandon your post at every opportunity to go and personally seek glory in a military situation, but the initiative in a battle, the focus of the center of gravity, as Clausewitz would call it, in On War, is that it's sometimes exactly what will tip the battle in your favor. There was a letter from James Longstreet, Confederate Lieutenant General, whose troops were making the attack, to Oliver Norton in about 1903-1904, I think it was. Norton had been on Vincent's headquarters staff, and Norton was, for the last couple decades of his life, Vincent's strongest advocate. And in this letter, Longstreet basically said it was due solely to the initiative of General Vincent getting his troops to that position before my men got there. That was instrumental in getting the fight over to the federal side on the second day. And that's high praise from the enemy commander. And that's high praise from any military officer, really, because, again, he did not have orders to be there. He did not have permission to be there. If the Confederates hadn't attacked, that would have been a court-martial. But because they did attack and because he was there, his brigade, the 20th Maine included, but only as a part of them, were able to secure the safety of the Federal left against a direct assault. Well, um, this uh, very much reminds me of something which is attributed to Patton sometimes, a bad plan uh, executed rapidly and decisively is sometimes better than not doing anything at all. And uh, from the, I don't want to say that Vincent's plan was a bad plan, of course, but the importance is him acting rapidly and decisively in a moment of uh, confusion. Now, as I've said before several times on this show, I might be sounding a bit like I'm repeating myself. Tradition is a big part of what we do. And because this, you know, we have all sorts of different audiences, but you know, we're all readers. We're some, many of us are writers, and so as a conclusion, the concluding questions here traditionally: Can you tell us about your own book journey, about the books we are you are reading? Maybe there's something you'd like to suggest to the audience. Uh, well, currently, uh, I'm engaged in rereading Fred Anderson's uh, Titanic classic crucible of war is 900 some page history of the seven years war or the french and indian war if you prefer the american parlance it's very well written very in-depth very exhausted and i think it's really the landmark history of that conflict both in the european theater and in the american theater uh, and I've also just recently picked up and started William Marvel's new biography, Fitz John Porter, Radical Sacrifice, The Rise and Ruin of Fitz John Porter. And I'm very excited to get into that one because I dealt a lot with Fitz John Porter in my book. He was the initial corps commander for Vincent's brigade during the American Civil War, and he's always been a figure who sort of attracts a lot of controversy because of his controversial court-martial in 1862. So I'm really excited to dive in and see what Marvel has to say about Porter and his reputation. I am going to probably look at that second one myself. Of course, I have a bit of an interest in the 19th century. Yes. And... <laughs> I'm, 
Hans, uh, I thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me again. It's been wonderful to talk to you. <laughs>